Hello, welcome, hi, it's Bart Campolo welcoming you to another episode of Humanize Me. This is my podcast. And if you follow this podcast, you know that I'm always trying to bring people and ideas to bear that will help the rest of us, all of us, fig- you know, figure out how to make the most of this life that we have, how to, how to squeeze the the last drop of goodness out of it by building loving relationships and by cultivating a sense of wonder and by making the world a better place for other people and all that stuff. And this week, the person I'm talking, I think you're going to like this conversation because I end up talking with a new friend of mine, a woman named Irshad Manji, who is a Muslim reformer, which means probably most of you have never heard of her. But she's actually a pretty big deal out there in the world. She wrote a book called The Trouble with Islam Today which a number of years ago got her in a lot of trouble. And she, you know, the death threats and all the crazy stuff that happens when you are a feminist, lesbian, Muslim, writing about how to make Islam a more progressive religion. Um, And out of that book, out of the experience of the fallout of that book, she ended up writing another book called Allah, Liberty, and Love, which is really about what it means to be morally courageous what it means to speak truth to power in your own community. And she's become kind of a hero, not just to Muslim reformers, but to people all over the place that are trapped in oppressive systems with authoritarian leaders that are asking them to obey without asking any hard questions. Does this ring a bell with anyone? Yeah. Yeah, this whole moral courage thing is something that a lot of us, we've had to muster up or we know a lot of people that could stand a dose of it, and she's become really good at teaching it. And so I'm excited. I'm working with her on the Moral Courage Project at USC, um, which you can find out about if you go to moralcourage.com, or if you go to bartcampola.org, where I'll have links to all Irshad stuff there. Um, But in the meantime, she's also, she's actually doing a program at USC this coming Thursday, November 3rd, And so if you hear this podcast prior to that and you're in the LA area, you should totally check it out. I'll have the link to that event. It's called Forbidden Questions About Islam. And it's really, it's not so much that she's an Islamic expert answering like minutiae about the religion. It's that she's sort of saying like, hey, what does it take to ask forbidden questions about your own community or about somebody else's community? How How do we have a constructive dialogue? How do we, how do we turn polarized conversations into constructive conversations? Which, uh, if you've been following this election, I don't know. I think this is a kind of a timely thing for her to be teaching on. So, uh, yeah. So anyway, I'm not going to just keep beating the drum. I'm going to say, I think you're going to dig this conversation. I was trying to figure out like what to tell you what it was about. And I, I'm sort of like, what isn't it about? We were all over the map, but this is a really smart person pressing on some buttons and, and uh, we got into it a little bit. I, I think you'll like it. I think you'll like Irshad. So I'm going to turn you over. Let's go for the conversation. And uh, yeah, I'll catch you on the other side. You're listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. So here we are. And my folks won't know you, even though you're friends with Bill Maher. Not really. Right. Not really. I just, uh, Bill Maher and I have sparred 
uh, on more than one occasion, um, but not over religion, um, mostly over what I consider to be his arrogance. Uh, so we might, you know, want right. to talk about but, that I mean, a little bit later. Because you also, I also say spar or engage yeah. with Sam Harris. Yeah. And I'm like, you've engaged with a lot of these people because they're part of that kind of hardcore anti-theist or maybe Islamophobic. You know, again, I, saying, for, for, for the sake of clarity. They're known for that. Yeah, and known and for that. I'm not somebody who goes around, you know, um, accusing people of Islamophobia. No, no, no. no. But, I, but like those guys are always saying, where are the moderate Muslims? Where are the Muslim reformers? Right. So it's no, it's it's not surprising that they end up with you because you're like, a famous Muslim reformer. Yeah, so famous that we, you know, have our annual general meetings in uh, in a phone booth. Compared to me, who doesn't like who doesn't know Bill Maher or Sam Harris, you're a famous Muslim reformer. <laughs> um, so they're always, but like when you get with them, you're a lot with them the way I am with them. Where I'm like, I agree with a lot of things that they say, mm-hmm. but I feel like the way they engage people of faith. Mm-hmm is counterproductive mm-hmm. because they drive people deeper into defensiveness and deeper, like it's like a boomerang effect. Right. Which by the way, makes me wonder about their motivations. You know, Bill Maher and to some degree, even Sam Harris, who claims to be mindful, uh, but actually winds up being distracted by um, Muslims who critique him rather than focusing on uh, supporting uh, Muslim reformers um, you know, for the long term. Uh, where were we going with this? Well, first of all, like, is it okay if I call you a Muslim reformer? Yeah, sure. But let's, let's talk a little bit about Unpack what that, that means. That. Yeah. Okay. So, but before I call you anything, let me tell you how you got, how did you get to be who you are? Like you grew up in Canada. Yes. But born in East Africa. My family and I. Oh, came. you were actually born in East Africa. Yes, I thought your parents came before you were born. Uh, well, my parents did come to East Africa. Uh, then they had me and my two sisters. Okay. Um, and then we were all expelled uh, among hundreds of thousands of others with brown skin. We were expelled by um, General Idi Amin, the military dictator, yeah. uh, who declared Africa for the blacks. And we weren't black. And how old were you when that happened? Four, four years old. And we wound up uh, in Canada. Um, Thank God the prime minister of the day uh, had a very deep friendship with a Muslim spiritual leader. And that that spiritual dude asked the prime minister of Canada if he would please consider taking all of these people who had nowhere else to go but needed to get the hell out of Uganda because their lives were being viscerally threatened. And the Canadian prime minister, interestingly, needed a way to introduce the official policy of multiculturalism and used us to do that. Wow. It was just, you know, it's a fascinating story. So so were there a lot of brown people in Uganda? Yes, yes, because- Indian, like people of Indian descent? Mostly Indian descent or, you know, the South Asian descent. What yes. were they doing in Uganda in the first place? Mostly they were merchants. Um, again, with some exceptions, but for the most part. And prior to, you know, doing business, they were brought over by the British. Now, keep in mind, the British had colonized what we now know as India. And they had also colonized much of East Africa. And they brought a whole lot of what we would call today foreign labor 
from India to build, among other things, the railroads. In Africa. In East Africa. Yeah. Why didn't they enslave Africans to do that like everybody else? <laughs> um, I think it had to do with uh, so like how, some... how, you know, uh, sort of the system of um, uh, exploitation, if you will, uh, that they had instituted in India and uh, al thereby allowing uh, laborers from India to then send back money to their families and in that way, you know, keep uh, the British Raj, the, the, the regime. Um, uh, in place and not, you know, riot against them or protest against them. So there's all these brown people in Uganda. Mm -hmm. Idi Amin comes to power. He says, you got to get out of here. You better get out of here um, because Africa belongs to the blacks. And this was at a time of, you know, uh, sort of uh, what became Pan-Africanism, decolonization, but then it devolved into this fever of Pan-Africanism, -Af which, which, the, the bottom line to which was Africa belongs to black skinned people. And it doesn't matter, Manji family, that you have been here for more than three generations at this point. It doesn't matter that you don't know any other country. It doesn't matter that you have only one passport, and that is a Ugandan passport, and are citizens only of Uganda. You do not belong here because you are not black. Yeah. And that's part of your. It, it, I can tell just like looking at you, like that resonates deeply with you. That 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 it left a it left an indelible mark on me. It's like the uh, first and, and, injustice, like that you encountered. Well, it's and at four years old, obviously, I didn't know what was going on. It was only later in my you know young adult years that, as I heard my mother uh, tell us that story. And by the way, my mother on this front does not come from a place of bitterness, not at all. The, on the 30th anniversary of our arrival in Canada, she brought all three girls on the phone and she said, girls, I want you to remember that when we touched the precious soil of Canada, we won the lottery of life. So she does not come from a place of resentment when she tells me the story of what happened to us in Uganda. Yeah. The reason the story about Idi Amin has had such an impact on me is that it is uh, a very forceful reminder that racism is not just limited to what white people do. It is practiced by people of every yeah. shade and hue. It's tribalism. It is tribalism. Yeah. That's right. But but let me be more clear. You know, we live in a time, you and I, Bart, when the word racism is that much more charged, particularly in this country, as a result of police brutality and, you know, uh, and systemic discrimination and so forth. So I'm going to use the word racism because at the end of the day, that's what it was. Idi Amin, a black man who said an entire continent belongs only only to blacks reduced people like my family to our skin color. Didn't matter that we were contributing to the economy. Didn't matter that we were creating opportunities for others. All we were was brown. Yeah. And that did not pass muster. And so that's how you ended up in Canada. Yeah. Well, the way we ended up in Canada was that, uh, 
Canadian prime minister. Right, made, made right? space. Made space. And, 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 and again, not out of strict altruism. You know, he needed, if you will, an excuse to introduce his policy for the country, for the country of Canada, his policy of multiculturalism. Right. And so it helped you were not only brown skin, but you were Muslim too. Like yeah. double double winners in the multicultural sweepstakes. Well, back then, there was no crime in being Muslim. I, it, the crime was to be considered, you know, Pakistani. And um, because, uh, you Is know, that what brown they used to people, call you? well, they, they would call me Paki. Um, and God, weirdly enough, I would pass myself off as Arab. Uh, again, that sounds odd yeah. today. Right. Right. But that was better than being Pakistani. That's what it was like. And so 40 years ago. So you show up and, and you're part you're part of a Muslim family. Yes. Both parents, they're into it. Um, to be blunt, my father was only nominally Muslim. My mother, uh, quite Muslim. Right. Cause I've seen her in the documentary about you, uh, faith without fear. Right. And she looks like a serious Muslim. She, she like a is, serious believer. She is a very faithful Muslim without being a dogmatic one. Yeah, no, she seems lovely. I just mean like, I get the impression she really believes in she God. She really believes in God. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, and you grew up believing in God. And I, again, you know, just to be clear, and I still do. Oh, I know. No, I was going to get to, I was going to get to like, I was going to say why, um, but <laughs> um, there's no evidence. But, um, but what I was going to say is like, you grew up in that in that community and was it a real community there like were you part of like was it were you like a little tiny minority or was there a whole muslim world around you no uh it was more of a brown people's world um where because you know we were all um the recipients of epithets um we it's not like we stuck together but we understood each other's experience as brown-skinned people um so I would say in that way, it was a community. But in terms of being Muslim, uh, it was more of a tribe, the kind of tribe where you pay the price for uh, not conforming to what the elders say you must do uh, and, in and order so you, to be considered authentic. And so like there's the mosque. Yep. And, and there's, there's the madrasa. Exactly. And is that just for girls or is that boys no. go to madrasas? Everybody it's, it's goes. For, every, every kid in the, in the tribe goes, but it was segregated. And is it like Hebrew school in the sense of like Jewish kids, like once a week, they go to Hebrew school to learn how to be Jewish. Yeah. And this, this is where you're learning kind of the core tenets of Islam. Right. Ironically, our primary text was entitled Know Your Islam. And I wondered, I remember wondering, even at the age of seven, your Islam? What if it's not my Islam? What do you mean your Islam? Who decides what my Islam is? Somehow that question came to me and it, you know, it, it was reflective of something much deeper going on. Right. Inside. And years later, like you're known as like this woman who asks all these uncomfortable questions about Islam. Yeah. Yours, mine, ours, theirs. But like, you're like this, you're, you're a gadfly. I don't even know what that word means. But it sounds good. But like, <laughs> well, I'm, I, I, all I know is, you know, Martin Luther King was called a gadfly. So if that was okay. good enough for him, it's good enough for me. But like, but that started early for you. Yes. You were asking these questions all the way, all the way through. Yeah. And 
did it ever reach kind of a a fever pitch? Like, did it ever yes. reach like a, a crisis a crisis point where yes. you were? What, what, yes, I was fourteen. Describe that. I was fourteen, and you know, had asked my madrasa teacher one too many uncomfortable questions, starting with, um, you know, why can't uh, why can't girls lead prayer? I mean, we're supposed to, you know, you tell us, sir, that girls mature faster than boys, so why not reward us by giving us leadership positions? And um, it culminated uh, this tension with this question. Um, you say, sir, that we cannot take Jews and Christians as friends. But I can tell you that some of my favorite teachers, some of the people whom I love uh, spending time with and who speak with me in a, in a respectful way, they are Christians and they are Jews. So why can't we take Christians and Jews as friends? And my madrasa teacher was so fed up with, you know, these, these inquiries that he lost it. And he yelled, look, either you believe or you get out. And if you get out, get out for good. And um, I suddenly felt sweat building up. Uh, under the You're 12 chador. years old, right? I'm 14. You're 14 years old. Uh, sweat building up under my chador. Um, and, you know, it was made out of polyester, by the way. And anybody who has ever sweated in polyester knows how itchy that is. So I could viscerally feel that there was something going on inside of me that needed a response. And there was one word that made its way up my throat and almost out of my mouth. It's a simple word, lie. It occurred to me that all of these years, the fact that my teacher, my madrasa teacher, was not answering my questions, not even um, giving me the respect of uh, engaging me on these questions. Um, finally, it dawned on me that maybe what I'm being told is not true. And in order to know for myself if it is not true, I need to study this on my own terms. And so when he said, all of this came to a head in that moment when he said, look, believe either you or believe get out. or you get out. Now, this is fascinating to me, not because I'm hanging around with so many people who question their religious upbringings or question their communities. But what what hit you with, and, and they're angry because this answer isn't good enough. And they're telling me that God's this way and I don't think he could be or whatever. But you're just saying like the real problem for me was not the answers that I was being given, but that the questions were being shut down. They were just like, you don't stop asking questions. Right. I don't stop asking questions. And in part, that may be the influence of public school. You see, I, I went to public school as most North American kids do. And um, there, my questions were encouraged. And again, not necessarily or even only about religion, but questions in general. My evangelical Christian vice principal pushed back on my uh, request on behalf of the student body when I was president of the student body, uh, my request to uh, order school shorts that were slightly shorter than he would like. But my point, he pushed back. And the point is, he engaged. 
Let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. Let me tell you where I'm coming from. Now, what do you have to say about that? And, and this is kind of an obsession with you. It's like, let's talk about it. Well, let's, let's be honest about where we're coming from. Um, let's not infantilize one another as if you can't handle my truth. Uh, that is what I find so demeaning is that so many people today, by not entering into honest conversations about admittedly emotional issues, uh, tend to treat one another as children, as if we will all melt under the spotlight of scrutiny. Well, I got to tell you, like, I, I, I did a podcast recently with my wife where we talked about these coming across some horrible doctrines of Christianity that we were taught as kids and me saying like, I think I'm supposed to maybe speak out against these doctrines. Now I'm not a Christian anymore, but just like, like you can't be teaching kids this stuff. Like this is child abuse to teach kids certain things about like a God who will destroy them and burn them forever. If they, if they don't, you know, toe the line. And I got back a whole bunch of feedback that said, Hey, if I bring that up in my, to my family, like that will, our relationships will melt. Like they can't handle my truth. Right. You know? And so I think that there's, there's a sense in which there's a lot of people out there that are going like, yeah, mm -hmm. like uh, these relationships won't withstand the, the heat of that kind of conversation. And for the record, I can assure you that some of that Sometimes also applies don't. to atheists. Um, oh, my oh, yeah, I know you know that. Yeah. But I think it's important, yeah. you know, to, to, to be clear. Um, and, and most recent, one of my most recent experiences um, was uh, in conversation with an atheist on a stage um, in which he was pleading with the mostly white audience to listen to African-Americans. And when it came to talking about religion, um, she was extremely dismissive, very condescending. And at one point, you know, to something I said, she just snapped, well, I don't get it. I don't get it. And I said, but that's exactly the point. You don't get it. That's okay. But just as you've asked white people to listen to African-Americans, I'm asking you to listen to people of faith. Doesn't mean you have to agree with them, not at all. But give them some space to express their truths. And she glared. And afterwards, she said to me, I'm just not used to being in conversation with believers. Um, so she didn't know how to handle, you know, uh, differences of opinion. No, and I think that that's, I mean, we were talking earlier about being discouraged about this election and being discouraged about the atmosphere. And I think that's the thing is that I feel like there are two different conversations, like there, there's two different conversations. There's two different Americas. At least two different. And they all, they each have their own news feeds. They each have their own facts. Like, and so the, the, it used to be like, we were all, we all had the same facts and we, we would interpret them differently. Right. Right. And now I just feel like, it's so separate. And I feel like that's like that with religious and non-religious people. A lot of times is that there's just, there's no interplay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so. But when, see, what, well, all I ask when, of people is that we acknowledge that we are a tribal species and that even when we preach rationality, 
there are irrational impulses within us to which we succumb. Uh, if not often, oh then at gosh. least every yeah. once in a while. I just ask. It seems so reasonable to me, but but biologically, I suppose it may not be. I just ask people to be honest about that. I don't even want them just to be honest, but I want them to embrace it. Like, mm -hmm. like I'm a preacher. Mm -hmm. And when I go to some of these secular gatherings and I'll give a talk, afterwards, people come up and go like, I didn't disagree with anything you said, but I hated your talk. And I'll say, why? And they go, well, because you, the, the way you modulated your voice and the jokes you told and that like tear jerking story at the end, you were totally trying to appeal to my emotions. And I'm a rational person. And I'm like, if you were rational, you would understand why I'm appealing to your emotions. Because people make their, mo their most important moral decisions in the emotional centers. Like, That's exactly right. It's, it's a rational choice on my part. Like, and so I just wish people would embrace like, yeah, you could be the most rational thinker in the world. But like when those Christians show up outside, you know, with their signs, your blood boils yeah. and you've got to face that. And if you and, and you've got to like figure out like, mm -hmm. how do I cope? So. So I'm thinking of blood boiling. I'm imagining this polyester, shadowed <laughs> right, woman right, right. at 14 years old getting yes. told, believe or, believe or leave, and you left. Believe or leave. I like that. He said, get out, but I like better, yeah. believe or leave. And, um, and I left. And the way in which I left, I think, uh, deserves to be known. Um, I was so upset, not about the situation, but about the order that I was just given. I wasn't asked to believe. I was being ordered to believe or leave. And that ticked me off to the point where uh, I walked, marched right past the boys section, kicked open the heavy metal door of the madrasa and yelled, Jesus Christ. I had no idea Jesus was a Jew. At 14, I thought Jesus was Christian. And for me, it all came full circle. Um, on the long walk home, knowing that my mother would have received a phone call prior to my arrival home, uh, I had to think about what I would say to her. And, you know, the great thing about my mom is that she always trusted me to do the right thing. Um, I knew, I just knew from the way my mom has engaged with me, you know, all along, that she would leave it up to me what next steps would be. And sure enough, when I got home, she said, okay, I'm not going to tell you to go back to the madrasa and beg for forgiveness. You aren't going to do that. I know. But what I am going to ask you to do is think about what you're going to do every Saturday now that you are not going to attend madrasa. And because she trusted me to make my choices, I reciprocated that trust by thinking about what would be the most responsible thing to do. And that is part of how I decided, geek that I am, that every Saturday 
I would spend the hours I would have spent at religious school, I would spend them in the public library, reading everything I could, not just about Islam, but about other religions, and not just about religion, but about other belief systems. And did you, when you went in there as 14, was there any thought to your mind, like, maybe that the whole thing's a lie? Yeah, yeah. Maybe that like this whole structure that causes this guy to be so afraid and this whole like. Now, again, I, you know, wasn't developed enough as a thinker to um, uh, to sort of uh, connect his insecurities and his angers to fear. Um, but it uh, sure it, it crossed my mind more than once that, you know, maybe I just need to ditch this idea of God. In reading, Bart, reading, 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 everything I could get my hands on, I came across this, frankly, beautiful concept in Islam itself, known as ijtihad, I-J-T-I-H-A-D, ijtihad. And I know that sounds frighteningly like jihad to many non-Arab ears. It comes from the same root, by the way, which simply means to struggle. That's what jihad means. But in this case, ijtihad means to struggle with the mind in order to comprehend the uh, delicious complexity of the world. And uh, ijtihad was and is Islam's own tradition of questioning, dissenting, debating, and reinterpreting. So... I learned from all of that self-study at the public library that um, I didn't have to bail on my faith in order to uh, bring out my questions. That, but what was your faith at that point? What, so my what, faith, what was my the faith, content of your faith? My faith was and is, and it, please, Bart, I really, really, really am not here to prove this. No, no, because no. faith is a different uh, is different from uh, from from reason, uh, very different, obviously. And and to to demand a faith, by the way, the same um, sort of you know uh, uh, evidence as you would of of science is to fundamentally misunderstand what faith is. So just know that I right, which, which, which I'm down with as long as faith doesn't make claims. Right. That oh sure, you know, and my faith as long as they're not no, expecting no. no. My scientific level right. obedience. I'm right, not right. exactly, and my faith certainly doesn't. But um, at the time, my faith was was and is in a creator who works with us to, you know, as Jews say, heal a broken world, tikkun olam, uh, to repair a broken world. And the brokenness that I saw at the madrasa, the anger, um, reinforced for me that there is something going on in, you know, in our lives that needs fresh air, needs an open window to, and, and, and a ray of light to begin addressing it. Okay, so, I mean, like, the the word the the phrase "broken world" always messes with me. Why? 
No, because it's, I mean, it suggests that the world was at one time whole and then it got messed up. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the, this whole, like, and that violates everything I understand about how life emerged in the world. Right. There's no evidence that the world was ever perfect. Right. You know, like, like we're an emerging species. We're in an emerging, life is emerging. And so I'm like, actually, I think like we're evolving in it, it towards more complexity and towards, you know, I, I don't know if I would call it progress, but mm -hmm. what I would say is like the idea that like, it was great back then. Like you sound like Donald Trump. Oh my like, God. Oh, are you serious? I'm just saying whenever, whenever anybody are you freaking serious, I'm serious to this degree. Whenever any believer tells me that the world is broken, they are conjuring up the idea that there was a time when it was as it should be. They're conjuring that up to you. To me, it has never had that connotation. What does it mean? Well, you know, because a central concept in Islam is Tawheed, which means the unity of all creation. What brokenness suggests to me is that we are fragmented as members or, or, or you know, participatory uh, actors in creation and that um, we've got to find ways of um, of uh, you know, uh, integrating ourselves yeah, into well, one another's and what I would say lives. You, yeah, uh, that's that's a beautiful thought, and you should come up with better language for it because broken always suggests to you the word broken to you. What can be there? Bart, I'm, I'm saying that to me, it has never suggested that. So maybe I do need to come up with better language, but again. In the like spirit said of humility, disintegrated. In the spirit of humility that I think we both, you know, try to embrace, just acknowledge that just you know because it suggests that the you know the world was once whole, just because it suggests that to you does not mean it's just that it has that connotation to everybody who you know shares your values. No, I share I'm, your values, and right, it doesn't no, no. have that connotation. I'm with you on that. I guess the weird thing for me is that language to me is only valuable to the degree that it communicates to the other person. Like it doesn't matter what I mean by it. Mm. It means what, what somebody else hears. Hmm. Um, hence the need for conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So not, not assumption or accusation. <sighs> if somebody says to me, national socialism, um, those words meant something very different in 1910 right. that they mean now. Right. And I would say like, if somebody's like, you're, you're a Nazi. In, in 1910, 15, that meant one thing. Now it means something different. And so I would go like, yeah, that word, like you don't get to define that word anymore. That word is defined. And so when somebody says to me broken, I would go like, you know what? I kind of feel like that word's defined. And so I would say, like, if what you mean to suggest is, is that we're not yet fully unified, like that, 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 the, you know, because a, 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 an astrophysicist would say, yeah, mm -hmm. everything's, you know, like mm -hmm. the earth is, is gravity has collected all these particles. And then, and I go like, oh, if you're saying like, we're not yet fully integrated, I would go like, I get that. Right. Like we right. haven't, we're unevolved. We're not, we're not yet, we're, we're not, we're in a process of integration. But I always worry when people talk about because because whenever anybody suggests that the good old days were 
were some, are something to go yeah. back to. It's just counter to everything right. I know about science, but it's also counter to everything I know about like race, right. racism, right. feminism, LGBT rights. Like I don't want to go back. You. I don't want to go back anywhere. No, I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah. We, you and I do not disagree on this. Uh, we're having a heated agreement. Okay. So, so you, I, I guess the reason why I'm interested in, in like, at, you know, 14 year old Yashad goes into the library and I'm saying like, what did you come out with? Because one of the things that I've, like, I was talking to an, an imam. I'm uh, sorry. Shut up. He's a nice guy. Great. <laughs> Try being a Muslim woman, then tell me he's a nice guy. Wow. All right. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm being deliberately she provocative. Is. She I, is. In the spirit of humility, I know she doesn't. Really I know. I don't. I don't. Um, it's very true. Bart, Bart got me there. But I was talking to this lovely imam, but who with whom I disagree on, you know, so much. Mm -hmm. And we started having a disagreement about you mm. because he said, he said, you know, at the center of the faith is the book. And, you know, all the opinions revolve around the book. Um, and I, I was like, I wish that were true, but it's not. I'll tell you what the opinions revolve around in Islam is sadly a secondary source of theology known as hadith. And what that means is the reported sayings and deeds of Prophet Muhammad. Now, why is that a problem? Because Muhammad, being a man of his time, 7th century, anything that he said and did in that time was specific to the 7th century. So, um, to, uh, to revere and literally idolize the reported sayings and deeds of the Prophet Muhammad is to put yourself in a time capsule. And, um, and f it really clouds the judgment of many in Muslim leadership uh, in terms of modernizing, you know, the faith. Which raises two questions that I ask of any believer in that situation. I mean, the first thing is, presumably the God who is referred to in this book, like that all-powerful, amazing, wonderful God, like presumably if he wants to communicate, he has the ability to generate new books or or just sure. or just maybe yes. addendums, you know, like uh, like like corrections. So whenever it's like, oh, it was made for the seven, you know, you have to understand it through the lenses of the people. I'm like, really, like that's the best all-powerful God can do in terms of communicating his will to humanity. I go like, wow, because like I could be so much clearer. Mm -hmm. Like, I, like I, I, like, how about just like I, I, with, the, with the Christians, I always used to say, like, how about just a commandment that says don't enslave or rape anybody like that would have been really helpful you're like what well, he, he couldn't get that kind of clarity and even if you couldn't be clear then like now could you be clear now so so that's that's my one thing but the but i'm the, with you yeah i happen to agree so like you know so so that which then calls into question I'm, i go like yeah it's hard for me to believe in a god who is on the one hand holding the whole universe in his hand and like has you know has created all this stuff and like but like doesn't remember to do an update. Um, that's a weird thing. And the other weird thing for me is this, is that my, my imam friend said, the problem with Irshad Manji is that she's not reading out of the scriptures, the truth. She decides what she thinks is right. 
And then she goes in scriptures and cherry picks verses and which is what people always used to say about me. And it was true about me. That's exactly what I did. Like the scripture, the Bible that I studied, you could justify slavery, you sure. could justify violence, you could justify subjugation of women. And I didn't like any of that stuff. So like I like underlined certain verses and I ignored other verses. Is that what you do with the Quran? Do you oh, I've, underline I've, and ignore? I, I've, I've, I have gone on the record as saying that it's true. I cherry pick. The thing is, I'm honest about that. My detractors are not honest about the fact that they cherry pick. That's what I used to say. Exactly what I used to say. I mean, and, 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 and I meant it, and it was true. Like, I was honest. I would say, like, oh, yeah, my understanding of God is not from the Bible. I bring an understanding of God to the Bible. There's only one God I'm interested in. I'm only interested in a super nice God who loves everybody and will save everybody in the end. Like, I was only interested. So I'm like, I'm going to go looking in the Bible and see if I can find some stuff that I can use because I, but at some point, don't you have to admit then then like, I had to admit like, yeah, I'm not a biblical, like my ultimate source of knowledge of what's right and what's wrong isn't the Bible. Is your ultimate source of right and wrong the Quran? No, no, but, here, but, 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 uh, okay. let me, let yeah, me I, add I, something. I'll be quiet that. now. I've asked that hard. Please question. don't be. Um, but m what, what I base my evolving beliefs about right and wrong on is not mutually exclusive from the Quran. Let me explain. Uh, there's this really genius passage in the Quran that states, um, there are there are verses in this book, meaning the Quran, that are uh, precise, and other verses that are ambiguous. But it won't tell you which ones on. they are. No, it won't tell you which ones they are. Okay. And then it says, <laughs> then it goes genius. on to say, hold on, it gets better. Then it goes on to say, and only those with disbelief in their hearts will seize upon verses in order to dictate their meanings. Believers, it ends, this verse, believers understand that only your Lord knows the full and final meanings of the verses. Okay. My interpretation of this <laughs> is that it's a call for humility. Point is that even as a Muslim, I don't go around telling people what they can and can't believe, nor do I go around, unlike this imam, with the notion that I know what the truth is. That doesn't make me a relativist. Oh, I despise relativism. What it makes me is a pluralist, meaning that I do have opinions about what is right and what is wrong, what is true, what is false, what is conscionable and unconscionable. And I start with those positions. Okay, hold on, let me finish. But I have enough understanding of my own weaknesses and my own limitations to know that my opinions are temporary and contingent, contingent upon two other things, having more experiences in life and hearing better arguments down the road. That's why it is so important to me that freedom of speech and freedom of expression be part 
of my spirituality. And you see, so this is my point, that what I take, yes, cherry pick, let's, let's go there. What I cherry pick from the Quran is not in contradiction with where my highest loyalties are, namely free inquiry. Which is a good cherry picking because they're sweet cherries. They are because here's the thing, like you're coming home from Madrasas at 14 and your mother, you say, my mother trusted me to do what was right. And they go like, and, and right according to whom? Like, I mean, it's one thing if you're good, if you're a good Bible thumper or if you're a good Quran thumper, you know, you can go like, right according to this, or, or, or as the imam would say, right according to the consensus interpretation of this. My mom, when I said... But, but like, who says what's right yeah. to Irshad Manji? Uh, well, my mother as a parent has opinions, as most parents do, about what is right. And regardless, Bart, of whether she's right about what is right, um, the the more important point, much more important point, is that she trusted both my ability to think and uh, the uh, the free will that um, you know I I believe that that we have been endowed with. She trusted both. She trusted something lead, else, though. She trusted to lead your to, heart to lead to a place. Yes, to lead to a place that would not be, in her view, irresponsible. Now you bring in the heart. She trusted that you were a good person. And, and what I would suggest is, is that our core understanding of what's right and wrong is developed in human relationship. Correct, I, I agree with that. Dogs, elephants, any tribal species figures out like what works, not just for you, not just for me, what works for us. Mm -hmm. And those things ultimately get codified as moral intuitions or moral moral sensibilities, and so morality doesn't get handed down from God. It doesn't come from the from any book. Mm -hmm. Morality is developed in human relationship, and then gets and then people like go like they 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 put it into a book. Yeah, they calcify it. They calcify it or they codify it. Right. And so, ultimately, when somebody agrees with me on that point, I always think, oh, then you recognize that all those religions are simply expressions of something much deeper, which is human morality, yeah, which is the ultimate source of truth. Are you saying that sarcastically, human morality? Or, oh, I see what you're saying. Yes, that that in reality, in practical terms, uh, it, it human from, morality it, comes the, from what humans have constructed. It's the baseline. Agreed, agreed. Um, Everything else is invented. Yeah, and and I must tell you, as odd as this might sound, that organized religion is not, you know, what what resonates with me. It's the idea of being in relationship with the creator who may not exist. But it's having um, a a uh, sort of a a guide to in whom I can confide my deepest doubts, my deepest struggles, 
believing that that guide has created each of us, not as widgets and not as robots, but as complicated creatures. And because that guide has the majesty that I attribute to it, uh, that guide is not a manufacturer. See, it's so interesting. Like the word guide, if you said to me, what appeals to me about the idea of God is the idea of subjecting myself or sub, sub, what's submitting. the word? Submitting myself right. to something greater than myself. Just the, the like, I like that idea. I go, it's funny. I heard this internet startup guy who's a friend of mine. And he said, uh, he said, I believe in God. He said, God is humanity connected. Mm-hmm. It's something greater than myself mm-hmm. to which I owe my loyalty. And I submit, you know, I submit to, and I have something to contribute, but like, he said, he says, there's no supernaturalism in my game, but he said, you know, it was funny. He was like, I, I submit to God and the internet is my religion. Um, because it's, the internet is my religion. Yeah. Because he was Ugh. like, it connects people. He, he believes in human connection. No, and, I know, but it doesn't connect. people. It's a methodology. It's, well, yeah. and, and he and I got into an interesting, a, a tough conversation about that because like, I'm, I'm all techno fearful and. <laughs> Luddite-ish, and I screwed up the mics when we started this interview, so I don't talk. Are the me. mics still working? Yeah, they're totally working. They're totally working. Um, so, so, <laughs> so here's the thing: is that like, it's when you say guide, I go like, if ultimately religion is an expression of the morality that emerges sure. from human beings relating to each other, then, then I go like, it's not the guide, cosmic guide, right? It's not the guide. Um, again, it's an expression. Sure, sure. Uh. Many of your listeners will have heard about Pascal's wager. Um, we won't get into that, but here's my wager. Here's Manji's wager. Shots. Okay, Manji's wager. Um, if there really is a God, then my wager is that God, that God, is only worth worshiping to the degree that this God you know, stands for uh, human integration and indeed integration of all creation, okay? If there is not a God, uh, I'm no worse off. I have not compromised, as far as I can tell, my ideals, my values, my own, you know, morality by believing in a God that accepts questions. And I would say that you probably have not because the path that you're taking, like you haven't submitted to any human teachers. Like, uh, yeah. you know, like, well, I've not, I think I, for me, the more accurate way of putting it is that I have not treated my teachers as gurus. Yeah. Or as God. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And you're right. Have not submitted to that's okay. I get it. Yes. Thank you. Um, so, so, so cause kind of, cause I mean, you go from 14, mm-hmm. you go to college, you become a hotshot journalist type. And you write asking a, lots of questions, right? Asking right? lots of questions, right? And you end up writing a book called "The Trouble with Islam Today," which is you sort of critiquing. And you know, it's funny. Like, I, I wonder. Like, I'm sure. I, I don't. Did you title that book or the publisher? No, I titled it. I actually originally called it "The Trouble with Islam." I meant contemporary Islam. Uh, many people pointed out that that's not how it comes off. And so for the sake of sheer accuracy, today. I added the word today in the paperback edition. And what's weird is like, I wonder if, if 
if we're going to get technical, the mm -hmm. problem with Muslims today. Mm -hmm. Because Islam yeah. is this big... Sure. No, no, quite right. And that was one of the big criticisms of my book, that it should have been titled, according to many Muslims, The Trouble with Muslims But The today. Trouble with Many Muslims Today. No one, yeah. no one proposed many, right. although, again, that would I'm, be more accurate. Yes. Um, the problem, though, Bart, and this gets back to the, the, the hyperpolarized environment in which we're all steeped, is that the people making that critique... Uh, that it should have been called the trouble with Muslims today, uh, are the same people, the same Muslims, who would have taken my derriere to court for fear-mongering, supposedly, against an identifiable group of people, namely Muslims, by having that as my title. And so, once again, oh, no. oh, yeah. we are... Right. We are because you're not, you're supposed to, you can attack the idea, but you can't attack, attack the people. According to the publisher's lawyers oh, who man. were coming from a Western multicultural perspective, if I titled it The Trouble with Muslims Today, we would have no legal standing to defend the accusation. Oh my gosh. So you would have actually had to title it The Problem with the Behavior of Many Muslims Today. Great title, isn't it? <laughs> oh, you would have just you yeah, know, read the no, book cover no, no, to cover. I totally get that. Like, yeah. you're not allowed to attack people. You can attack ideas. But Muslims have said to me, you should have attacked us rather than right. the, idea the, the idea of Islam. Because who are you to say what Islam is? Islam can, Islam's many things to many no, no, people. No, 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 no. No, that would have been a great argument. No, nobody, no Muslim has ever said that to me. What they've said is Not even Islam, Reza Aslan, you know, like that's his whole thing. Islam, I've been told, is perfect. Oh, it is we it's Muslims we, have failed who are to live not. It out. Yeah, there's the problem. Man, I gotta, I gotta love it. So, okay, so, so you write that book. And, and I'm going to fast forward you because you write that book and you take heat, right? You take a lot of heat. Like you get threatened, like bad things, like, you know, but you also get on TV shows. People are like, what, what was the main trouble with this, with the behavior of many Muslims <laughs> back when you wrote this book? Right. What was the, what was the thing that you called out that was the yeah. most upsetting to people? Oh, the most upsetting? Was it, was it, was it, you were saying that women should be, should be. That wasn't the most upsetting at all. The most upsetting was that, and I'm glad you pointed out in, you know, with, with um, uh, some sarcasm, which I share, uh, that I wrote this now 15 years ago. So, right. you know, it's the trouble with Islam Back 15 then, years yeah. ago. The most upsetting argument I made in the book is that, um, at the time, Israel uh, was a pluralistic country which uh, tolerated questions galore about its own legitimacy. And I said in the book that we Muslims could learn from... Oh. Wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> no, Mark. I can just see where you got... I could see where, uh, where that's going. I, You know, that is under Netanyahu not the case anymore. No. And I make the point very clearly in The Trouble with Islam Today, i.e. 15 years ago, that, um, you know, that kind of freedom that at the time existed in Israel is fragile and uh, easily disappears. And we've seen 
how it has disappeared under the authoritarianism of not just Netanyahu, but also, this is touchy for many Jews, uh, under the authoritarianism of more than a million Russian immigrants who have brought to Israel their um, cultural conditioning uh, and therefore, you know, embrace yeah, that migration yeah. changed that country right. a great deal. Right. But so, what's interesting so, is too, in this country too, it's the same thing, right? Yeah. Right now, yeah, yeah, yeah. The the ability to kind of that's right tolerate dissent and 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 and, and integrate it in the conversation. Well, we're losing that. We we are losing that. We are losing that big time. Um, and and it brings us back to that point, you know, that that we started with, which is that. The hyperpolarization of America today is such that the cheerleading for both Trump and Hillary is not just pretty mindless. It is also, you know, so deep that even those who claim they stand for reason, i.e., those who back Hillary, aren't interested, aren't curious about engaging yeah. uh, the so-called other. My, my, and without without that curiosity, yeah. okay, we're screwed. Oh, no, no. It's funny, my students here at USC in the Secular Student Fellowship, the book, like, you know, you know how like a book is like, that's our Bible? Last year, the book that they were all passing around and going, you gotta read this, was Jonathan Haidt's book, mm -hmm. The Righteous Mind. It's a great book. And it was all about how in a polarized society, you assume that because somebody's on the other side of the issue, that they don't care about the country or that they don't care about poor people or that they, and he said, let me tell you where people's political and religious values come from. And they come from the same place, conservatism, liberals, this, it's this gut level instincts for purity, for authority, for, um, you know, um, oh, I'm trying compassion. And he's like, they're just, they're, you're playing people's heartstrings yeah. differently. Yeah. And he was like, if you understand what motivates your enemy, you will still disagree with them, but you will not hate them. Right. And you will not dehumanize them. And this is the journey I've been on since the trouble with Islam today, is I have actually been schooled. Uh, whether or not I've proven it in this conversation is a different issue, but I have been schooled by young people in the art of listening. Because... Uh, a lot of, um, you know, 20-somethings um, who would come to my events would say to me, Irshad, thank you for what you're doing. It's, it's necessary, but I'm a Christian, and if you want to talk about the rise of dogma, let me tell you about the dogma in my community. Or I am Jewish, and I can assure you that there is rising intolerance in my community of people who uh, have, have criticisms of Israel. Yeah. Uh, or I am atheist, and I'm noticing that there's a real hate on for people like you, people of faith. And I don't know what to do with the fact that here we are standing for rationality, but we're behaving very irrationally. And, um, you know, my ego, Bart, first, took these comments as a commentary on the inadequacy of my thesis, that there is trouble within Islam today. I would get very defensive. I would say to these kids, oh, 
So there's trouble in your community, huh? Okay, tell me, in what other belief system today that's active today do you uh, have your life threatened merely for dissenting? And a lot of these kids, God bless them, um, would pause and they would say oh, something along the lines of, huh, yeah, I never thought about it that way. Thank you. I'm, I'm going to reflect on that. Now, back to the point I was making about the rise of dogma in my world. And over time, I came to see that they were teaching me something I didn't understand at first. That the message for which I stood was so much bigger than Muslim reform. The message actually was and is moral courage. Doing the right thing in the face of your fears. And what is so fearful for so many, including myself back then, holding the mirror up and asking ourselves, how am I contributing? How is my behavior contributing to the very problem I see in others? Yeah, my, my dad used to say that in the Old Testament, there was the tradition of the prophets and, uh, and he said, the difference between a prophet and a demagogue is that a prophet calls out the wrongdoing within his own community and within himself or within herself. And a demagogue calls it out in somebody else's community. Um, I, that's, um, I, to me, that uh, summarizes it very, cons very nicely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm glad, by the way. That uh, and I'm just a little surprised, I have to say, because so few people seem to understand um, that part of speaking truth to power isn't simply, uh, you know, calling out external powers, uh, politicians, madrasa teachers, parents. It's also calling out ourselves for how we, you know, interact with others. So, so again, back, back to how I was interacting with these kids. Here I was getting defensive about what I interpreted to be their criticism of my thesis that, you know, there's trouble only within Islam today. And, oh, and they were simply saying, and they were saying, actually, uh, yeah. there's trouble within humanity today. There's trouble everywhere. And, and, you know, Islam is part of that. But Irshad, you got to understand that, you know, we're many of us beyond the Muslim world are facing these challenges too. So they were actually giving me an opportunity, Bart, to make the challenge. Um, what are you going to do about yours? Yeah, something that they can be inspired by. Yeah, okay? And, and, and the, here I was taking it as a, 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 a comment about my own inadequacy when it didn't need to be that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's interesting that you took it that way. Cause I wouldn't have, I like my, my instant thought is, and that's the thing, like people say, well, Bart, you're this secular humanist chaplain at the university of Southern California. And now you're like, you're working arm in arm with Irshad Manji on the moral, moral courage project, which I am. 
and they say like she's a believer like what's going on here See, and, and you say, can't win right and i say like but the place to where we are, yeah. are are working together is on this place of moral courage it's this idea that there are a lot of things going on in the world that 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 people need to address in their own communities so so for instance when i as a secular humanist say Islam is really terrible to gay people. There, it, it's tr it may be true, but it's not helpful, or or, or, or it's not ultimately effective. Mm -hmm. But when an Islamic reformist says, "Hey, there's a problem in our household," when my friend Brian McLaren does that within Christianity and says, "You know what? These these horrible teachings about hell." He writes a book that, that says that all Christians must renounce the teaching that God damns people to eternal eternal suffering. Well, it means something because he's a Christian and he's fighting like, and now some Christians say, oh, if you believe that. Then you're not a Christian. Yeah. Or they'll say to you. Uh -huh. Right. And, oh, how many times I you, cannot count the ways I've been told that I'm not really a Muslim. Yeah. And suddenly, you know, the very people who claim that uh, uh, God is the, is the judge suddenly become God themselves. Yeah enough of a God to decide who is Muslim and who is not. And, 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 you know, like I look at you and I go like, just, just give it up. Come over to the dark side. Like, <laughs> like, like there's so much good we can do in this world. Um, if once we give up that, that, that crazy language, you know, and I say that in all humility, like I don't sure. really mean it that no, way, I but, but it's hard for me. Yeah. But on the other hand, I go like, is somebody who cares about the plight of women in Saudi Arabia, or of girls being female genitals circumcised in Africa, or as somebody who cares about the, all the gay Muslims that I know on, on, on the down low, I'm like, stay Muslim, <laughs> stay Muslim because your voice is, your voice is way more, um, effective within than without. Yeah. It's credible. Right. But, but let me also make clear. I know you know this, but I need to make it clear to those who don't, I don't remain Muslims for Muslim for strategic reasons. I remain Muslim and identify as such very sincerely. Now, uh, I remember you and I had an encounter several weeks ago where you really pressed me on, you know, beautiful question. What is your highest loyalty? And you might recall, I did not disagree with you that my highest loyalty is to free inquiry. It is to free inquiry because Faith, in order to be sincere, has to be examined. Um, otherwise, you're just taking somebody else's word for it. Okay, now, again, I know you believe that I'm taking somebody else's word for it anyway by identifying with faith. But my point is that uh, my belief in God is not in... Um, uh, is not a, a contradiction to, you know, my, my love of free inquiry. Um, what I learned in that secular institution called the public library is that, uh, you know, the Quran contains three times as many verses asking us as Muslims to think and analyze and rethink than to simply submit and obey. As long as the faith that I have is sincerely 
compatible with my love of asking questions, I don't see why I should have to give up my faith. And, and to be, again, very blunt and possibly childish, I don't mean to be, but, but here it is, um, my faith gives me comfort. It gives me the kind of hope that I don't have, I'm sorry to say, in human beings. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's interesting to me when people say they have faith in, in, in God that they don't have in human beings. I, and I am deeply, deeply sorry to, to say that. I, 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 mean, it's only... I, I come from a place of hope. I, I believe that human beings have the capacity, all of us have the capacity uh, to, to be morally courageous. But I no longer believe that most of us have the willingness to work at it. Well, you know, I'm trying to be, trying to be hopeful. And what I'm realizing is, is that we're in a moment and the enlightenment was a moment that lasted 300 years. You know, like that, 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 these, that, 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 that there are long history is human history works on a, a lot much longer scale than my life. Absolutely. And and the history of life works on a much larger scale than human history. And the history of the universe works on a much larger scale. And so it's sometimes when I say, like, gosh, I'm losing hope, it, it, like I it, you know, I, I sort of think like, you know what? Give it time. Uh, and 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 I I um I deeply appreciate, really appreciate that that point. Uh, it's frankly what keeps me going. And yet, Bart, again, I, if we, you know, we're going to be, if we're going to put everything on the table, let's put this on the table too. That from a neuroscientific point of view, um, we, we are being naive because uh, evolutionarily speaking, we are biologically wired to um, remain within our insular tribes and to privilege fear over and to believe in supernaturalism so uh you say give it time i sincerely hope you're right but is that realistic who was the, i'm trying to remember the line who was it that said human nature my dear boy is what we were placed on this earth to rise above and you know we are wired and a anybody that studies evolution or anthropology knows that we are wired and and that we're wired probably for a for a world that's about ten thousand years ago. Um, that 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 our, our we evolve in, intellectually and physically much more slowly than our technology is evolving right now. We're way Ain't that the truth? and it just keeps accelerating. And so, I don't know where it's going. I don't know that we like that this species of living things will be the one. That is interesting. You know, I, it may very well be that on millions of planets. In, in billions of other places far, far away, life has emerged and developed technology way faster than it could develop reason and killed itself off and we never heard about it. Right. And that maybe, maybe there ha that has to happen a lot of different places before somebody figures it out. Um, as unlikely as this one form of life mm -hmm. is in the universe, maybe there's on a much larger scale another kind of natural selection going on. Mm -hmm. um, all I know is 
I am tribal. I'm loyal to this species. I'm loyal to the human experience. I love this life. It's the only one I know. And I'm trying to do whatever I can to see that it lasts a little bit longer. Because even if it doesn't last forever, if, if just 100 years from now, because of the work that we're doing, it lasts long enough for another little guy to grow up, run around, fall in love, have, have kids like, you know, if somebody else or, or another little girl to grow up and fight the power and fall in love and get married. Like, it, it, even if I'm not there to see it, I just, that thought gives me joy because I've loved my life so much that I'm willing to fight for that. And you go, like, but what if it's not permanent? And I go like, it's not that I don't care. I care, but I don't care enough that I'll give up if it's not. But the reason my hope is in humanity or in, in life, I should say, life as we know mm -hmm. it, because I'm, I'm, I'm down with the bonobos and the elephants too. We're all part of the process. And my dog, Lily. And your dog, Lily. But the reason I'm down with that is because I don't have any evidence of anything else to put my hope in. I haven't seen anything else love anybody. I haven't seen anybody, anything else learn anything new. I haven't seen anything else overcome its, its crudeness, even for a moment, the way we have. And so I'm loyal to this. Mm -hmm. Because this is all I have to be loyal to. Uh, the reason I can't yet feel that loyalty um, is that I don't think as human beings in our, in the arrogance of our species that we have, we know sufficiently uh, about other, you know, um, um, living beings to know that they have not risen above in a much better way. Um, what we still struggle with. That's so funny. You know, it's like, it's like we literally don't know their language. Now, Franz DeWall has this book called, yeah. Are We Smart Enough to Know How Smart Animals Are? And which he says like, the way we measure animal intelligence is always through our own, exactly. our own lens. It, it is rather like, you know, strident atheist speaking with a strident believer, right? They're talking past each other. Um, without figuring out and being curious enough and humble enough to figure out what are you really trying to say to me? And can I ask you more questions so that I can clarify, you know, where you're coming from? So, so I don't think, yeah, I think again, that is why my highest loyalty is to the idea of free inquiry. I was going to say that may be the thing above all that we need to be evangelists of. That we is need curiosity. To, is curiosity. Um, I am so down with that. Because I, I, so I think in our work with, with students that. here, yes. as we're trying to draw students out and say, we want to teach you this skill. Mm -hmm. Would you call yeah. it a skill? Yes, I would. Because I, uh, I, I sometimes think it's a characteristic or a quality. Do, do you mean of moral, moral courage? courage? Yeah. yeah. So again, it, is it a thing you it's, do? It's, it's, or is it a thing you are? No, it's, it, you learn it. You learn it. Uh, some people are naturally curious. Um, it, there's no other way to explain it that they, you know, come from a place you of wanting to ask, yeah. right, lots of questions. But I, I also believe, and I've seen this at work and in the many years that I've been teaching moral courage, that um, some other people simply need to know they are permitted to express themselves. And to ask questions. And asking questions is part yeah. of, of, of expressing yourself, right? Which is why I think the time we're living in 
is pretty dark. It's not just dark because of the obvious, um, you know, uh, negativity. It's dark also because so often those who preach social justice also come from a profound lack of curiosity about the other. That is, you better agree with me, otherwise you're a bigot. There are so many good people, Bart, who have questions about the experiences of those who say they're oppressed by the system, but fear asking those questions because the last thing you want to be called is a foe or an ist, as in racist, of any kind. And I think that until more people are sense the permission to be curious, openly curious, we're going to be like the humans and, uh, and the doggies. We're going to be barking past each other. Yeah. I think it, 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 it's, it is this curiosity. A lot of times I look at young people and I try to figure out how I can convince them to care about other people securing the knowledge that I have that unless they learn to really care about other people and care about the poor and care about those in need and care about those who are oppressed, that their own lives will never be rich. Mm -hmm. that, that, that ultimately they can't flourish unless and until they recognize and accept that their lives are caught up with the lives of others. And so I'm, I'm always trying to figure out like, what is that magic ingredient that would get somebody to care? And it may just be that it is curiosity, mm. but the first step in caring, right, right, is, and, and is to just is to to look in there. So let me say something, you know, possibly offensive, but but certainly counterintuitive, given our moment in history here. Um, so many people uh, just you know very compassionately assume that um, if you're going to be morally courageous, uh, you've got to align yourself with people who say they are suffering um, because that's fighting the power. You know, you're fighting the sufferings or you're fighting the power. But I would say that often people who say they are suffering are suffering because of something within themselves, not because of an external, you know, circumstance like systemic discrimination. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if a kid, a white kid, let's say, has a, a black friend and that friend says, I'm being discriminated against because uh, my teacher gives me, you know, lower grades than everybody else. Uh, it's too easy for the white kid to assume, okay, I'm going to help you, you know, get the justice you need. And without asking any questions of that, of that, you know, black friend, for example, um, what do you mean you're being discriminated against? Well, I get lower grades from, you know, from the teacher. Well, have you asked the teacher why? I know why, because she's white. But, um, okay, uh, are you sh are you doing all of the homework? No, I don't, you know what? That's not the issue. The issue is I'm being discriminated against. And so, once again, round and round, we go. And if we're not each of us in that scenario, willing to ask questions, willing only to make statements, but not be curious about what's really going on, 
then I don't think we're going to get to the bottom of what ails the human heart, what ails the human condition, and how to mitigate, you know, that suffering. Well, I know that when you're a lawyer and you want to try a case in the Supreme Court or you want to, you want to tr a test case, a, a case to, to challenge a system, you know, you, you pick a, a case and the lawyers always vet that case very carefully. They want to make sure that that victim is squeaky clean. That, that the crime that was committed against them was for that reason and not because they were late with their, their payment or, or something else. Like They ask a lot of questions, not because they want to deny justice, but because they want to fight for justice. Mm -hmm. And they're like, you know what? We've got to be clear here. We've got to know what's going on. And I think it sounds like to, to me that you're saying, hey, we need to teach people to be curious all the way around all the way around. So that when they call out wrongdoing, they're sure it's wrongdoing and not just, you know, kind of miscellaneous grievance. Right. Um, right. And I hear that. I hear that. And, and it's just so... I don't know that it's a controversial know, it's, thing to say. It's, it's a hard thing to say right now because like, you know, I look at the police stuff and I lived in those neighborhoods most of my life. And every victim of police brutality that I've seen so far isn't completely clean. There's always some, there's always some mitigating factor, but I've been in those neighborhoods long enough to know that like that problem is so real that, that, that those police are so scared. There is so much discrimination in the way the policing goes on. And so, so whenever anybody says, well, ask the question was, you know, did he have drugs or was it, you know, like, ah, I get nervous. Of course you get nervous. And in part, I think, I would I would uh, venture to say that's because of the way people ask those questions, right? In that accusatory manner, um, in which they uh, seem to be immediately taking sides, or seem to be trying to like dis discredit your your right, grievance, right? Rather it's, than I'm like, it's, it's but I, I want to understand exactly. Yeah. And I was just going to say, You're but right. you've you've already gone there for me that. Um, the the problem is not the asking of questions. It's asking questions to win rather than to understand. What if, can we, given our flawed human nature, can we move beyond the winning and losing to, to listen to understand? Oh, my sister. This is where I'm going to stop this podcast right now because most of the people who listen to this podcast have been hurt or are in weird relationships with believers. They're non-believers in weird relationships with believers. And a lot of times they just keep their mouths closed. But when they open them, a lot of times they ask questions to win. They get in arguments to win. And if there's anything I think I would want us to like a closing note, it's that we need to be more curious Sincerely curious. Sincerely curious and trying to understand not where the flaw is in somebody's belief system so that we can disparage it, but why they believe it in the first place. Why do you believe that? Yeah. Now, my sincere belief is that if you ask sincerely good questions, a lot of times you're helping somebody out of bad, bad belief systems. It's the kindest thing you can do. But whether it leads them out or not, mm -hmm. it is the right thing to do. It, it is the human, humane thing to do. Like, 
And it's the hopeful thing to do because I don't think we're going to get anywhere fast by having more of the conversations where, like, like you see in the politics now, but also you've seen it in religion and non-religion forever. These gotcha, like I've, I've spotted the hole in your argument. God doesn't exist. I've spotted the hole in your argument. You know, we've got to start asking questions with, what did you call it? Sincere curiosity. Yeah. A sincere desire to know the other person. Exactly. Not just know of. Yeah, people like you exist. Right. But to know. Yeah. You know, the other. And I'll just leave you, Bart, with this thought. Um, back to Trump Nation. <laughs> I, I was have... all I was all inspired. No, and no, no. You're going to you're okay. gonna be inspired by this, I hope. We'll see. Um, I have uh, a neighbor and actually a very good friend. At the same time, he um, he is a firm supporter of Trump. It's easy to assume that this guy must, uh, you know, must uh, indulge in the various phobias, including homophobia. Well, he's the same guy who introduced me to my now wife and helped give me away. Um, at our wedding. People are so much more layered, so much more complex than we give them credit for. Yeah. And, and, and I must tell you, I have been enormously enriched both by his presence in my life and by the sincere disagreements that we have. Yeah. If nothing else, he has clarified for me why I believe what I believe. And you know, it's a gift. I have an old friend, a guy named Brian Stevenson, who runs the uh, runs the, the uh, Justice Project down in death row stuff. Right. Right. Ted talking superstar, wonderful guy. One thing I remember Brian saying was, he said, "None of us should be reduced to the worst thing we ever did." You know, like the, 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 there's always more to us than the worst thing we ever did. And I think that for people like you and I, what we have to recognize is that none of us should be reduced to the stupidest thing we believe. <laughs> um, yes, please. You know, none of us. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. And, and we, and we, and we, and we daren't do that to other people. And so right. we've, we've got to start asking sincere questions for the sake of understanding. And that is the beginning. It's not the end, but it's the yes. beginning of moral courage. Yes. It really is. Like, like before you can stand for what's right, you have to ask some questions, but you've got to of ask. Of yourself. Of yourself. And, and of others in order to then bring it back to, do you know, what do I believe. Should I believe it? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and if I should, should is this the time to, to lay it on the line? You is this it. the time to pay the price? So there's a lot more to moral courage yeah. than sincere curiosity, mm -hmm. but it may just be the seed yep. of everything. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think it's unreasonable to, to expect that. And so that becomes the question that I'll walk away with is how do I spark curiosity in somebody who's incurious? Mm -hmm. How do I do that? How do I get somebody to be genuinely interested in something that at this stage in the game, they're just not interested in. And, uh, and when you've got that flash of insight that I know you will arrive call at, you, call you like, Fact. <laughs> You've got my mobile. All right.
This is good. Thank you. You can even text me. I will. I, 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 I know you're, you know, you call yourself a technophobe, but you know, you're I think you saw, you saw to earlier today what a technophobe I am. All right. <laughs> this is great. Thank you so much. Oh, my for pleasure. This thank you. Yeah. And, and, and thanks also for, you know, for pushing back um, and calling me out on those moments of, of arrogance that, you know, we also come to including people like me who preach humility. <laughs> thank you. All right. I'll talk to you soon. Ciao. Okay, so that was my conversation with Irshad Manji, who will be speaking at an event called Forbidden Questions About Islam at USC on November the 3rd at 6 p.m. at the Wallace Annenberg Hall. Um, and yeah, if you want to find out more about that, go to visionsandvoices.usc.edu, and it's all there. Um, and I'll catch you next week. I've got, a, a, like, it's amazing the cool people I'm having conversations with um, recently that I'm getting on this podcast and I've got a bunch of them lined up for you. So, uh, yeah, we'll catch you next time. Thanks. For more information about the work of Bart Campolo, please visit bartcampolo.org.